Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Managing Up Show. I'm Travis Weisgood, and I am joined by my co-host, Brandon Hayes and Nick Means. Hello. Hey, everybody. So actually, this episode, I want to talk about something that I've heard Nick Means talk a lot about lately. And uh, recently, Nick, you actually gave a talk at a conference I was at uh, called the Lead Dev here in Austin and gave a talk about the building of the Eiffel Tower, but it wasn't really about the building of the Eiffel Tower because that's the classic Nick Means I'm going to tell you a wonderful story. Oops, I actually made you learn something type of thing. And it raised a topic that I think we don't talk about enough or we're afraid to talk about, and it's office politics. And you kind of brought that out in a way that was a little confrontational to people's typical viewpoint. And I actually wanted to dig into that for for this episode. I think we we talked about it a little bit beforehand, and I think that sounds like a fun and important and useful topic of discussion. So Nick, I'd actually just like you to kind of take it from there and talk about how you sort of challenge people's viewpoints on that and tell the story of how that talk came about. Yeah. So I love a good technical story, which, you know, you've seen my talks before. This summer we were in France and uh, we were at the Eiffel Tower and I found myself looking at it and thinking about how in the world it was built in the 1800s and decided I wanted to do a talk about the Eiffel Tower and had no idea what it was going to be about. I just knew it was a cool story. And so I started digging into the story of the Eiffel Tower, and I I wanted to resist the typical building metaphor, because there's all kinds of building stuff you could do that ties into software. That's the obvious thing to do with it, and I didn't want to do that. And I don't know, I probably had the story 80% done before I realized what the talk was actually about, and what it was actually about is politics. Because there's this really wonderful backstory through the building of the Eiffel Tower where Gustave Eiffel goes all around 1800, late 1800s Paris, negotiating for his tower and trying to get money to build his tower and trying to get the land to build his tower and settling lawsuits and all sorts of things. And it's uh, it's this interesting tale of how he built the tower, but more than that, how he got the right to build the tower in the first place. So at what point did you realize that, you know, this wasn't an engineering discussion, this was a, a discussion about engaging with politics? Like what what was it about his story that kind of made you realize that? So there's this one document that Eiffel writes that I I say the name of in French. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't say it right now because I don't actually know it. I have to read it from my speaker notes. But it's this really long title, and it's essentially his plan for the tower. And he spent the better part of a year going around Paris, giving this document to people, autographing it for them, and having discussions on, here's why you should pick my design for this grand central monument for the, the exhibition in Paris. And in, in watching that process unfold, and as I read the history of the, the exhibition, it became pretty obvious that he was working those political channels, and it made me think of the fact that to build anything great, you have to work politics. There's always politics involved, because it always involves getting more than one person doing this thing at the same time, or agreeing to do this particular thing. And I think the same thing plays out for us in our jobs. So I'm curious, um, you've used the term politics a lot. Um, I remember listening to a book, uh, why we're fat. And it was one of those things that every time he would say fat, 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 it's like, that's a word that you don't hear in the normal vocabulary. And it like throws you back. Politics is a a word that you don't generally hear in normal day-to-day conversation other than, uh, used derogatorily to talk about, oh, that person just plays politics all the time or, um, talking about politicians and, and, uh, dragging on them. Was there a reason why you chose to to go with politics and take that word um, and try to use that when it does have so many negative connotations to it, rather than try to soften it and make it something that was uh, more approachable? 
I, I wanted the talk to be intentionally confrontational on that point. Uh, it, it's probably got my favorite reveal of any talk that I've written in, in that I have the audience put their thumb up sideways and then put the word politics up on screen and ask people to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down based on their sentiment. And, and you know, it's it, it's one of those things you never ask a question you don't know the answer to in a large group. Obviously, everybody's going to give thumbs down because I, I don't think there's anybody that really loves politics. But I wanted to take that turn and, and, and immediately have people feel that negative reaction when the word politics came up on screen, that, that initial disgust, and take some time turning it to try to get them convinced that that's something that we all have to engage in to get stuff done. So I didn't want to soften that term. There's other terms in the talk that I do soften and, and reframe, but that was one that I wanted to embrace. I like that idea in a lot of ways, and it's a it's a gutsy thing to do. And I think you have to feel confident about the platform you're standing on to decide to take something that people tend to dislike, but you know something about and rebrand it. Uh, Brene Brown does this with the word shame. She's like, nobody wants to use the word shame. That's, the word shame has a horrible branding problem. You know, you talked about the word fat, the word shame, and the word politics. There's a lot of negative connotations around that. And so if you're feeling a little froggy and you're ready to try to help uh, rebrand something, you could actually have a major impact on people to try to help shift a conversation about something that it, the avoidance of which could be harmful. But that's actually what I wanted to ask you about. What, what is the harm in avoiding politics? One of the things that I say in the talk, and, and Travis, you mentioned this as we were discussing what we wanted to talk about today. Uh, anytime you get more than two or three people together trying to do something, you're going to have politics. Because really all politics is, is how humans share power and decision-making ability. So at its base, it's, it's sort of this ambivalent term that's neither good nor bad. And it's how people go about engaging in it that makes it good or bad. And generally, the things that most of us have seen in our organizations, the way people go about engaging with politics makes politics a bad thing because it's people playing the game, trying to get ahead, not engaging positively with coworkers to get stuff done together. But they both fall under that same umbrella. So you mentioned people playing politics to, to get ahead versus playing politics to like work together and organize people together towards a common goal. When most people say, oh, so-and-so is playing politics over there, what do they mean? And then what do you mean when you say using politics as a force for good? Now, is there a way that you can frame it where one is uh, positive and one is negative? So I'm going to throw back to one of the source material pieces that came into play as I was writing this talk. There was a, a keynote that Sandy Metz did, I think it was last year at RailsConf, where she talked through a book on persuasion and then Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I think that really encapsulates the difference in the two things nicely. Because like, there's this art of persuasion and even manipulation where people go about getting what they want through holding people hostage and and negotiating in bad faith and all sorts of things. And then there's this style of negotiation that seeks to be mutually beneficial. Whereas, say, I'm, I'm a lead in an organization and I'm trying to get a certain responsibility for my group and I know it's good for the organization and I go around to the people above me in the organization trying to persuade them of that, that it's good for the organization to do this. That, in my mind, is more positively engaging in politics. There's a book on my shelf and I kept very few books from my days in marketing. I spent five or six years trying to become a persuasive marketing copywriter to trick people into purchasing our startup software products. And uh, the people that were leading me there had 
every you know every manipulative tactic in the book. They were actually trying to get us. I didn't acquiesce to this, thankfully, but they were trying to get us to read the player's handbook type stuff for like uh, pickup artistry. They were always looking for every edge and advantage over our customer in what you were talking about in this sort of zero sum game of there are people out there with money. Our job is to get them to part with it and damn the consequences after that. And I think people think about politics in that way, too, as a zero-sum game. And I liked your reframing of it. You took three concepts and reframed them, I think. I think it was three concepts. One of them was what politics is. One of them was what self-promotion is. And I can't remember the third one. Uh, but yeah, can you could you go through those and, and tell us like what what's... You know what people are thinking about when they think about politics and and uh, self promotion and networking. Yeah. So so in the talk, I bring up uh, I mentioned this earlier the document that Efel goes around late eighteen hundreds Paris sh- sharing with people, and really all he's doing with that document is networking and self promotion. And uh, one of the turns in the talk is I reframe those two words as making friends and telling stories, because that's really all they are organizationally. Is if you're networking, you're just meeting people around your organization and outside your organization. It's not for any particular purpose. There may not be any aim in it. I mean, Gustav Eiffel met with all sorts of people that had absolutely no decision-making capability on the tower. But you're just building that network so that you do have friends in the organization to talk with and to network with and to get meetings with other people in the organization that you need to meet with. And then the idea of self-promotion is just telling stories. It's building this story of the competency of yourself and of your team so that when you do come with those requests, when you do come with a request to do something, you have the credibility to back it up and the trust of the organization that you'll be able to get it done. It makes it much easier to get other folks in the organization on your side. So Brandon, you uh, touched on something uh, that as I've been listening to Nick, uh, kind of crystallized in my mind, this idea that the things that you can do, the possibilities uh, that that you, a team, uh, a company can do is a zero-sum game. And that in order for this thing to happen, this other thing can't happen. Um, so it's pick one. I wonder if that's where people who have who look at politics distastefully, um, if they're starting from that point of view. And I, I wonder if there's a, a tendency as developers to think that way as well, because there is generally a right and a wrong way, um, especially as you're starting out in your career. As you get further and further along uh, in your career, you realize, well, no, there are an infinite number of correct ways to do to solve this problem um it's figuring out which one is the the least not correct <laughs> um I, I wonder if it's that if it's that tension of zero sum versus we can take on as much as we want uh that's driving a distaste for politics yeah so that was in in the talk that's the second sort of subject or the third subject area that i get into reframing a little bit and it's negotiation and uh, yeah, people typically do view negotiation as a zero-sum game. If my group gets money to do this thing that we want to do, then your group doesn't get any money. But that's that's rarely the case. It's rarely that black and white. And uh, so I, the thing that I reframe negotiation to is collaboration. The idea that it doesn't have to be zero-sum and we can work together to collaboratively figure out what it is that all of us are asking for and try to get as much of that as we can for everybody involved in the, the discussion. I actually think the example from your talk helped me reframe this personally. It was really powerful. Yeah, so there's this delightful bit in uh, the story of the building of the Eiffel Tower where the French government has promised Eiffel the money for the tower, which turns out to be 6 million francs after the plans are all 
laid down and understood. And the French government goes, wait a minute, that that's really expensive. And we're trying to put on an exhibition here. We can't afford 6 million francs. We can only afford 1.5 million. And so Eiffel could have easily just walked away at that point and said, well, there, there's not money. I'm, I'm not going to build the tower. But instead, he goes back to the French government and says, well, I think we can make this work. Uh, I, I just need you to let me leave the tower in place for 20 years instead of one year. And I need you to let me charge an additional three francs to go up to the top of the tower above and beyond what people are already paying to get into the fair. And the French government agrees to that, and that's where the money to build the tower comes from, is that negotiation and Eiffel's willingness to engage in the process versus seeing it as a zero-sum game where either the French government gives them the money or they don't. That's literally a mindset difference, right? And who among us hasn't been in this position where you're pushed to the edge of a deal that was, you're promised something, you are promised this promotion, you're six months in, you said, hey, after six months, you told me I was going to get this promotion and this salary increase, and you're telling me now that I don't have that. And I'm just going to take my ball and go home. And we've all, I think everybody at some point in their career has had this experience where a negotiation fails and uh, you feel wronged by the other party and you want to just shut it down and go home. And what is illustrative about this is here's this guy where the stakes are so high and this whole setup was so unfair. It's easy to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who was just basically cheated by the government. Uh, and his response was, there is a way to make this happen. He was so motivated by the goal of making this happen. And he, he knew that really in their heart of hearts, the government wanted this thing to happen too. So if he would just exercise some creativity in finding a solution, the thing that you really want to happen can happen. And in every relationship, I don't care if it's marriage or dealing with your kids or dealing with uh, a challenging employee, there's always some sort of third option if you feel like there's a black and white setup where it's like, no, you need to do this or you don't have value to this company, or I, if I don't get this promotion, I, this company doesn't have value to me, there's usually a third solution where you can go, wait, so if I gave you this, I could get the thing that I actually want. But we're sort of boxed in by this this scarcity style thinking that if we don't get what we want, we need to just move on. Yeah, there's a book I reference in, in that part of the talk. It's You Can Negotiate Anything by Herb Cohen. Uh, one of my mentors pointed out to me early in my career, and this is sort of when politics started to settle in for me as something that I, I could engage in. And one of the ideas that Cohen gets into is that you really have to understand what it is that you are asking for. And you really have to understand what it is that your negotiation partner is asking for. And those are often not surface level things. So Eiffel could have seen the negotiation one of two ways. He could have seen it as, I'm asking for 6 million francs. Or he could have seen it as, I'm asking to build this tower. And because he saw it as the latter, because he knew what he really wanted was to get the tower built, he could avoid getting distracted by the 6 million franc discussion and find a way through to get what he really wanted. But it takes a lot of introspection on your part and a lot of open-ended probing questions on the part of your, your counterpart, whoever it is that you're negotiating with, to figure out what everybody's motivations are in a given situation, because they're often, often not what we say they are. That's a, an extraordinary point, that when you find yourself in a tense negotiation scenario, the last thing that you want to do is pause and take a breath and, and introspect and figure out what you really want. You know, when you're having an argument with your spouse and you're like, what do you really want? You wanted this argument to be over and for things to be good, right? But what you really want in that tight minute is to be right. The sh extreme short-term goal is you want to be right or you want them to know that you're mad or you want them to know that you're upset or that you feel slighted or wronged or uh, that you want this immediate, this immediate thing or a raise or whatever it is. But overall, 
if you are able to take a step back and introspect, then I would say this is basically a superpower that a few people that I have managed in the past have exhibited. And I've actually said this, that number one thing that will benefit your career is to know clearly what you actually want and how you need to be managed in order to get that. And the best people that I've ever managed have come to me and said, Brandon, I actually don't like being managed this way. Uh, what I want is this. And what I need from you is this. And I'm like, huh, well, I'm actually okay doing that. I was trying to guess at what you want. And it might have been that the French government thought that this guy just wanted the six million francs. You know, who, who, who knows what they thought he wanted. But when it became clear that what he wants is for this tower to exist, he's, he gained advocacy. This reminds me of a, a quote that stuck out to me uh, from a recent interview that we did where they said, as a manager, uh, as a new manager, the key thing for them was focusing on the outcome. Um, and as long as they focused on the outcome um, and then how they could help enable their team to get to that, uh, that was the thing that that uh, centered her uh, as she was was moving into this career. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if that outcome is a shared outcome, right? If there's shared benefit in that outcome, hey, we're going to make more money. And that means at the end of the year, there's going to be more money to go around for bonuses and stuff like that. The interesting thing about the Eiffel Tower story is that Eiffel actually ended up money way ahead by what ended up happening. Um, he ended up making enough money off of the tower to pay for the tower during the span of the exhibition. And so had a further 19 years to make money off of this tower because it was far more successful than anybody thought it was going to be. He did all right. He did okay. Yeah. And the French government, I mean, the, the tower's been standing for over 100 years now, so I, I would argue they came out okay in this situation as well. So another thing that helped me was when you reframed self-promotion to be something that is like a necessary part of this conversation and not gross. And it calls back to the Eiffel's handing out of pamphlets and talking to people about his past accomplishments. Could you tell a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, so there's this aspect of self-promotion that's all about building credibility, right? And, and, and building the belief that you can do this thing that you're saying that you can do and that you should be given the right to do. And, and there's the story that, that Eiffel probably told as he was going around handing out this pamphlet. Um, his team had just finished building the Garabit Viaduct over the Trier River in France. And it was, at the time, the tallest bridge in the world. And, and it's built out of similar iron girder construction as the Eiffel Tower. It's basically the same construction technique. And there's this, this poignant stat that in the planning of this bridge, Eiffel calculated that when a fully loaded train went across it, the bridge would depress by exactly eight millimeters in the center. Like that's, that's how much compression there would be in the structure. And after the bridge was built, they measured it and he was spot on. His calculations were on the money, exactly eight millimeters. And so it's, you know, we've all got stories as engineers and as leaders where there's a moment in our career like that where we've just been that stinking right about something. And there's a way to go around and tell that that's not scummy and, and just builds credibility. You know, we, who, who hasn't sat around and just told war stories over beers, right? Well, that's what you're doing in that moment. You're self-promoting and, and you're, you're building credibility just by telling stories. So listening to you talk about this, especially like reframing and trying to take something that for various societal reasons, cultural reasons, has uh, a, a tendency to be viewed negatively um, and trying to frame it as something positive, I can't help but think of how technology gets used. Um, the same technology that's powering uh, this conversation that we're having right now and sending the bits back and forth uh, into our, our three home offices is the same power that can be used negatively uh, to launch a DDoS attack. And it's a matter of how you use that technology. That's the same thing. It's whether or not you're using it differently. And I think this is something that 
uh, we're used to dealing with as developers when we're looking at uh, technology and evaluating technology and talking to people uh, like I can't help but think of, of my parents' generation, my dad's generation, and they view technology very skeptically because they've seen uh, the good and the bad uses of it. It's just something they don't really fully uh, appreciate. And his parents' generation looked at things like the TV in the same way, that it was very skeptically because they didn't really, uh, they couldn't wrap their heads around how it could be used uh, positively and negatively. And they kind of lean towards the negative because it was something new. What you're describing here is nothing new, but if viewed through the lens of, of a, for lack of a better word, a technology, it's just a, a wetware technology. I wonder if that would help a developer and a new uh, engineering manager, like reframe this as they're thinking about how they uh, approach the other people in their organization. Yeah, I mean, there's this, there's very much this idea that politics can be good or bad, and it, and it's all in the implementation and employment. How how we go about being political, um, it, it's challenging in an organization because the style of politics that I'm talking about does require a lot of vulnerability and a lot of empathy with the people you're engaging with. And uh, Brene Brown came up earlier in this conversation. One of the things that she talks about in Daring Greatly when she's talking about shame is this idea of a marble jar. And the people that you deal with in your work life and in your personal life, there's this idea that you build up trust with them slowly over time. And we all do things to each other that evaporate trust. So you pull some marbles out of the jar and we do things that build up trust with one another and you put marbles into the jar. And so over time, you learn which negotiation partners in your organization this style of politics will work well with and which people you need to be more on the defensive and more skeptical about their motives and more careful when you engage with. That's actually a really great point is is not to be Pollyanna about politics that internally I can be I can engage in politics and be true to myself. That doesn't mean that everybody else that you're engaging with and and part of what engaging with politics is, is understanding that you're not going to be able to establish absolute common ground with everyone because you can't possibly engage in a high trust, non-zero-sum negotiation with somebody who lives in a zero-sum scarcity mindset. And so you are going to have to sort of engage in politics. And I think that's the stuff that scares people off. And so I would say the training wheels version of this is to choose people that you can trust highly and stick close to them and choose environments that are that are uh, worthy of that kind of trust. If you feel, uh, I think actually Brene Brown talks about uh, that she she talks about wearing armor and and she strips all her armor off and feels like she's running through a briar patch like a turtle with no shell running through a briar patch. And her therapist comes back to her and says, well, well maybe leave the briar patch. If, you're, if you want to be the kind of person that doesn't need armor, then don't go into the briar patch. And so uh, if you find yourself in an environment where you feel like it's safe to do that, and when I say an environment is safe to do that, like find selected people that you know you can trust first. Like establish a basis of, of trust with a few people that you know you can trust implicitly that you fill up that marble jar over time. Um, maybe they get half the marble jar filled because they are a friend of a friend that you know that you can that you know do you trust that person that person trusts that person and so you can start there. Um, it, it's not it doesn't have to play out like a, a complex game or a Tom Clancy novel or or a John Grisham novel or whatever. Uh, it, it's just finding a place that's safe for you to establish a base of operations to operate politically, knowing that you can tell them good things that you do and establish confidence in your capabilities. Uh, hopefully you have a, a boss that you can share that with in a way that you know is uh, going to get used in a good way and they're going to radiate that positive stuff about you as well. 
And if you don't have any of those things, it's actually probably not a great place to bootstrap your skills in engaging in these kind of politics. Yeah, we've talked about that some before. There, there are safe organizations to move into management in, and, and organizations that you probably don't want to make that career transition in. And I think that's sort of what we're talking about here. Because making the career transition into becoming a manager is, in part, learning about politics. That was one of the interesting, interesting things about the lead developer audience. I've done this talk three times now. And by far, I got the most mixed thumbs on the word politics at lead developer because the people in that audience are more comfortable with it than the folks in the other non-leadership audiences I've spoken to have been. And at some point, maybe maybe you do develop these skills well enough that you feel like you could go to a, a cutthroat place like Westeros and, uh, or Washington, D.C. or whatever, uh, or, or Microsoft. But at the beginning, you know, you, you probably... Uh, you probably aren't in an organization that's that difficult to navigate and requires that level of political savvy and skill. And and it's okay to outsource that to a boss that you can trust that cares about developing that skill. I mean, ultimately, you have to outsource part of it because there's there's levels of the organization that as a line manager, you don't get to participate in. There's levels of the organization that as a director, you don't get to participate in. And so you're always going to be outsourcing some of it. And so that's, uh, that's sort of what I mean about a safe organization to transition into management. You have to have somebody to work with that you know you can outsource the levels of this that you can engage in. Uh, the other thing I was going to say about this is you know, going into that cutthroat place into Westeros or into Washington, D.C., there's some things that, that Herb Cohen talks about in his book about discovering motivations for people who aren't necessarily the most trustworthy negotiation partners. There are techniques and conversations that you can have even in hostile negotiations that will let you get to the point where you understand motivation and uh, and can negotiate even when your negotiation partner is not negotiating in good faith. It's more difficult. It's, I mean, you're, you're turning the difficulty way up when you engage in those situations, but they are possible. Right. You can play to somebody else's self-interest and still get something done. Clearly, like, that's the level of skill that uh, after probably decades of learning that Eiffel brought to the table. Yeah, I'm sure. That, I mean, he's, he's used to negotiating multi-million front government contracts at this point yeah. in his career. And he knows, like, this person doesn't give a shit about me. They want to get reelected or they, you know, they want to do something that looks good and plays back at home or, uh, you know, he, he's willing to be aware of what they actually want beyond what they say they want because they know that they're not going to be 100% crystal clear. And I think that's the part of politics that scares people off. But that's like, you know, uh, that's like level seven of 10 or whatever on the scale. We're talking about people that are afraid to engage at level one and two, where you can just advocate for yourself to get that promotion or to to take that experiment. I think a lot of people, and, and there is some truth to this, a lot of people think that the best way to play politics is just to do really good work. And that's a great baseline to establish. But if you do really good work and you're not willing to tell people about it, you're going to be super shy about it. Or if you do really great work and uh, you don't uh, network and build a, a baseline of people who trust you and you trust, uh, that good work is probably going to exist in a vacuum for a long time. And it will take much, much longer to advance uh, your career or your own interests in a way that that will feel unfair to you. But the reality is you chose not to engage in the other areas that you have labeled political. Yeah, I feel like the the first thing that when when somebody that I manage is moving towards this direction, moving into leadership, be it technical or managerial, one of the first things that we end up talking about is not waiting for permission. Because I think we all go through this phase in our, our career where we wait on someone to ask us to lead, to step into that role. And, and the reality is that's something that you have to figure out how to do even when you don't have that formal mantle. You have to figure out 
how to negotiate with other people and how to get them on your team even when you don't have the formal authority to do it. That's To me, that's sort of level one of, of this whole discussion. So Nick, one other thing that I wanted to make sure we, we got to from your talk that was really valuable when you talk about becoming a manager and you, you're now not just advocating for yourself, but you're advocating for an entire team. And you, you wear this mantle that feels sometimes very heavy because your job is kind of to protect your team. And I think it's uh, certainly for new managers, there's a very protectionist sense that you get uh, around your engineers. And you talked about a concept where a lot of people describe their job as a manager as a shit umbrella. Jason Fried actually posted about this recently, and it threw up a you know this lively debate on the internet, um, as they are wont to be, uh, about what the responsibility of a manager is in regards to protecting their team. And you had a really good metaphor for that. I didn't have a really good metaphor. So this is actually a, a metaphor that I got as I was interviewing at GitHub. One of the engineers on my team, Steve Rickert, used this in an interview. This topic came up about managerial responsibilities and, and what a manager should do for a team. And I was talking a little bit about the idea of, of being a shit umbrella, but not being such a shit umbrella that you couldn't see what was going on in the rest of the organization. And he said, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like being a heat shield. I, that's, that's a term that I like better for that. And I paused the interview and said, no, I, I have to write that down right now because that's such a good metaphor. I don't want to lose this. Um, and I think it makes a lot more sense, right? Because when you're an impervious shit umbrella, you're, you're serving as an information choke point between your team and the rest of the organization. They're not able to see what's going on above you. They don't understand the politics. And if you have anybody that's inclined towards leadership, they don't learn how to do the politics, which is another important point. But the idea of a heat shield, I mean, it comes from space. It's you know, when a craft is reentering to deal with the friction of the atmosphere. And, and if you've read anything about the Apollo program, you know that those capsules got pretty warm on reentry. The heat shield did not block all of the heat. Because if it had, it would have been too heavy to get to orbit. So it's this sort of carefully calculated compromise of how much heat do we let in so that the astronauts can survive this reentry process, but not be so heavy and unwieldy that it can't get to space in the first place. And I think as managers, this is what I talk about in my talk, as managers, our responsibility is, is to find that compromise in our organization and for our teams. Where we are blocking enough of the organizational noise where our teams can focus and get things done but not so much that they don't understand the organization and they're, they're separated from the vision of the organization. Yeah, I have definitely worked with uh, people in the past, uh, reported to people in the past, uh, who uh, very much took on that, that uh, quote-unquote shit umbrella mantle um, uh, fervently. Uh, and when they, they left or were transferred to different apart departments, all of a sudden there was this entire flood of things that, that happened that you had no idea were happening in the organization. Uh, other departments that were doing things um, that you had no idea that they were doing. And in your mind, you're going like, why aren't they doing this? And then you find out they are. Um, but in an effort, and I think it's always well-meaning, uh, every time I've seen this happen uh, thus far, it's been very well-intentioned, uh, trying to protect the team and ensure that they have the ability to do their jobs and aren't distracted by the, the bazillion things that are going on. Uh, you end up in a situation where you're disconnected to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think for me that that portion of the talk came out of a very personal place because I've been that shit umbrella to a team before. And I, upon leaving that team, I sort of saw what happened. Um a lot of it around the, oh my gosh, I had no idea what you were shielding us from. 
And, you know, you leave a team when you've been in that role. I mean, you burn yourself out. I was very burnt out at the end of that role. And you leave a team that has no idea how to cope with the mess that's above you when you step out of that role and, and you're suddenly not blocking things. So my fear in having this conversation is that I wonder if this is something that must be learned experientially. Because every single manager I know has made this mistake. Every manager who gives a shit about their team has done the thing where they protect their team and burns themselves out being that heat, being the like the impermeable heavy heat shield. And then when they leave, the team burns alive, not exposing the team to enough of the organizational challenges, not exposing the team to enough of their purpose. Uh, Travis, I've heard you tell stories about times in the past where this has happened uh, with teams that that you've been at or or other people have led that walk away. And then, you know, there's a massive disconnect after uh, after somebody leaves, I've been that manager too, where I walked away from a job and, and immediately thereafter, the team was like, Oh my God, I had no idea. This was so, so much of a mess. And you feel kind of validated for a minute. You feel like, wow, I was really valuable there. Right. I was a valuable person on the team. Maybe that was worth burning myself out over, but it's not sustainable for you. It's not sustainable for that organization. Um, and it means there has to be a better way. And one of them is about facilitating the connections that bypass you and go around you enough of them and not so many of them that they can't get any work done because they're spending four hours a day, you know, managing relationships. That's not appropriate for somebody whose job is to, you know, produce knowledge work or creative output of some kind, but exposing them to enough that they would survive a transition to somebody else taking that over or potentially even nobody taking that over for a while. Yeah. I think that in, in my experience, that's an area where it's really hard to, to walk the line. Uh, because there's the the one end that we've been talking about where people are just completely disconnected from the organization and don't know what's going on. Um, and uh, especially the further up the ladder you move, for lack of a better word, the, the more chaotic organizations become. Uh, if the best run organizations look like a well-oiled machine. Um, but you ask anybody who's uh, in the trenches helping shape that that narrative, and there's a lot of... of uh, chaos and uncertainty that everyone's trying to wrangle uh, to make that that a reality. Um, and so the other end of the spectrum that we haven't really touched on much is the, okay, you're too transparent. Um, I know that's something uh, I've it, that's been a challenge for me. And I've had people who report into me who that's been a challenge for them as managers where they're too transparent. Um, and there's a certain level of uh, ensuring stability, uh, providing stability. Um, that's why I say that the being too much of a block, I think is coming from a good place. I mean, it's kind of a pendulum swing. I think Brandon, you might really be onto something. You've got to find where that pendulum sits in the center for you. And it's going to be a little bit different for everybody. Um, and it's going to swing from being too projective to too, uh, over communicative and back and forth. Um, but there's some place in that middle that you should always be trying to find the spot to land in, um, so that you're, you're providing just enough context, but not too much so that people under you are going, Oh my God, what's going on? I don't know what, where we're going. And, and I think, I think the thing that makes that balance so tricky is not only is it different for every manager, it's different for every person on our teams, because you have people that really want to know what's going on. They want to understand what's going on in the larger organization and they want that transparency. And then you have other people that don't want that transparency at all. It scares them. It, it makes them feel very unsafe and very uncomfortable and makes it hard for them to concentrate on their work. 
when I've been in that spot where I've been the super impervious shit umbrella, I've had engineers that have come to me and essentially given me their read on organizational politics and said, am I correct? Is this what's actually going on? And that was one of the cues to me that I had been too opaque and needed to be more transparent with this particular engineer. But on that same team, I had another engineer that was a worrier, for lack of a better word, and really needed a lot of shielding and a lot of protection from the the swings of the organization. I was going to say, I think people will mostly tell you. I've actually had people come up to me and say, Brandon, this is too much information. I don't want to know the place this business is in to this granular a level because it makes me stay up and worry at night. Uh, I don't want to know how hard your job is. <laughs> I want to I want to know how hard my job is. And then I've had people you know, do the opposite. And I think if I could give a piece of advice, people mostly, creative people will tell you when they need to be left alone more. They often won't tell you when they need more information. And so I kind of err on the side of giving more context, more information within, you know, within sort of without breaking confidences or, or sharing too, trying not to share too much. But I try to err a little bit more on the side of giving more information because people will tell me when to stop so that they can go back and do their job. They'll tell me when they don't want to be involved anymore. But not a lot of people will speak up and say, I want to be more involved. They just will go about doing their work and then they'll be super pissed later because they weren't included and they were overshielded. The feedback loop on that one is long enough and dangerous enough that I, I tend to, maybe it's because I'm trying to justify my sort of personality type as an oversharer, uh, but I feel like oversharing is just and, and, and gets corrected faster. I think you're right. I think that's a safer place to, a safer default to operate from is to be a little, a little more on the transparent side. And it's nice in that it removes some of the burden from you as well because you're not carrying as heavy a load when you're doing that. So coming back to the main point and topic that we've been talking about, what I loved about the talk was this idea that here's a guy who did something literally monumental. He built a literal monument. And if, if you really want to do something of consequence, it's going to require working with other people. And there's literally no way to work with other people without engaging in some kind of politics. And so taking the stigma off of that is, is pretty great. Uh, it's pretty powerful. And I think it will empower individual contributors and managers who might look at this as something to be avoided and icky to look at it as something that, yeah, it's icky. And, and so is the germs in the air that we breathe. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was the, the key takeaway that I wanted folks to get is that there, there is a way to engage in politics that is still true to you and the things that are important to you and your values. Because I spent way too long in my career looking for a job that wasn't political, that I could just write code. And I think everybody goes through a phase like that in their software development career. Because it does feel gross for a while. And then you realize that literally everything of consequence that's ever happened in human history has politics behind it. There is some negotiation that has gone into that great thing happening. And I think that's true for us as well. If, if we want to do amazing things in our careers, if we want to build amazing things and lead teams that build amazing things and build amazing companies, there's no way to do that without finding a way to engage in politics that's true to us and true to who we are. I think that's a perfect ending. Yeah, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for putting so much work into that talk. And I'm really glad that you discovered that theme in the process of you know looking around you in the world and seeing something neat and wondering what went into that and then discovering something that would be really meaningful, I think, to a lot of people and, and hopefully is meaningful to the people listening. So to anybody joining us, thank you so much. And I hope you learned something. I know I definitely did. I'm Brandon Hayes. You can find me at Taviking on Twitter. I'm Nick Means. You can find me at nmeans on Twitter. And I'm Travis Weisgood. You can find me at tsweisgood. 
just about everywhere. And again, if you like the show, the best way you can help is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And as always, if you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Managing Up Show. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you again soon. Fucking Nerf guns. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, recording these at the office, uh, I would say it's there are fewer Nerf guns involved, but I'm sadly, that's not true. Yeah, we we have... <laughs> We have enough for office-wide battles in our <laughs> office. There's a closet full of them. <laughs>